good afternoon, good evening, good night, depending on when you're listening to this. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast. So in this episode, I sat down with a cousin of mine, um, Oliver Thomas, who is a former city councilman in New Orleans, uh, and now a radio personality, and talked a little bit about his life, his life in politics, post-politics, some of the things he's doing as now as a radio personality for W. WBOK 1230 um, and just chatted a little bit about everything including of course COVID-19 giving it so pressing on everyone's mind. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the interview. Well I was saying thank you for doing what you're doing with Victory Podcast. I think we're in an age right now where independent news sources especially for, for black folk people of color people locked outside of the, the two percent and I'm not saying like this president that news is fake news, but it's definitely slanted one way or another. So I think what you do, what we try to do at WBOK with Equity Media, uh, I think it's more necessary now than ever. For sure, for sure. So yeah, thanks uh, Oliver for coming on the Victory Podcast. Um, We can maybe give folks a little background about how we know each other, our long uh, (laughs) history a little bit. Well, your, your mother and my, and, uh, my father uh, related, and of course, your uh, your aunt actually did the research to verify what the old people have been saying, that we actually come from uh, the Lesseps lineage and some of that other lineage that people thought we were just playing cousins, but we found out uh, more recently is what my father and I think of your mother always knew, that we're actually uh, real cousins, so... And uh, it's something we always do because it always felt good. But it's good to know that your relation is really your relation. And of course, mm-hmm. watching you grow up as Troy's uh, uh, more seasoned daughter, I've been very <laughs> proud of you for what you've done in business and what you're doing now in the media. Yep, awesome. So yeah, we were talking before I started recording a little bit about this whole uh, COVID-19 era, this very timely and kind of curious how the city's doing and how people are doing. Are they kind of cooperating or is there a mixture? Or what do you well, see? It's, uh, we're doing well in spite of, you know, we're, our family, we're sheltered in place, doing our best to follow the rules. But uh, to be honest, uh, Monique, uh, for, especially for all the people out there on Victory Podcast, it's been extremely difficult to get everybody to do the same. But we're a very social town. You know, uh, we're a town where people like to gather. You know, you know, in your hometown, we'll have the Road to Walk Across the Street Festival, a party, just to celebrate something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, too many people. And, and I, you know, I made a I talked the other day in an interview that if people really cared about their friends, they wouldn't be calling them to get together. They would be encouraging them to stay in place and be safe because even if it doesn't affect you uh, negatively, because I think most of us here have it, but those with chronic illnesses and those who are borderline, you could give it to them. So uh, the mayor started a long time ago. The governor fell in line with the emergency declaration and stay in place. And I think it's getting better uh, because I'm watching a lot more younger people kind of start respecting this thing. And one of the biggest conversations about it I think early on, to be specific, and you know, with Equity Media and with WBOK, we focus on the African-American community, mostly at large in this area. A lot mm-hmm. of black folk uh, were playing with it. You know, they weren't respecting it. And they even had myths out there that black people couldn't get it. 
Well, guess what we're seeing right now in terms of uh, mortality rates in fatal cases? We're actually seeing more uh, cluster of African-Americans, unless it's nursing homes with older whites. We're seeing much of our community uh, be disparately affected. In yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're doing the same out here in the Bay Area. We've been in the shelter in place for, we started a couple, this is week, we just finished week two of shelter in place out here. Um, the greater Bay Area County started it, and then we went statewide. So originally with the countywide shelter in place, it was only supposed to go till April the 7th. But now, now that we're under this statewide ordinance, there's not really a clear end date. And like, so schools and stuff are closed as well. I mean, thankfully, I don't have children at this time because I just can't imagine. We were, I was on a call with some of the other leaders on my site. It's just like another challenge of like, okay, you basically taking on another job while still Absolutely. trying to do your job of trying to like teach your kids. You know, so it's really is, crazy. My wife is doing uh, the bounce, the mounts program for Ali, for your little cousin. And mm -hmm. daycare is closed, and Google Classroom for Willow, who's 10. So you're really acting as, as teachers again. And then the most stressful part about that is that, you know, we're, we're not as prepared to be all day parents as our, as our mothers and fathers and ancestors were uh, because school and daycare and, you know, and other activities come into play. Well, it's a little different when these kids are with you 24-7. It feels yep. like 48, 24. <laughs> <laughs> well, you notice yeah. I got serious there. Mm -hmm. No, I understand it. That's definitely what um, a lot of the other, like there are leaders um, on our leadership team for our site that um, I have, you know, like variable age kids. Some people have like, preteens, teenagers, and then some have like early education, like five-year-old to 10-year-old kids. And they're like, especially the ones with the kind of younger end right. of that band are like, yeah, I'm taking on enough because they're still working from home. There's still a lot of meetings. And in some ways it's even busier because people feel the need to be present, like to, to show that they're like actually doing work like that they're online and having calls and whatever. So it's, um, it's definitely something that's unique and it's, it's, I feel for leadership globally, um, because it's just like an, it's an uncharted territory to this level. We've had epidemics before, you know, the H1N1 a few years back and, you know, SARS for the oh. folks in Asia and all that. But like this scale of the epidemic with, with everything going on is just kind of unprecedented and, and new territory for leadership. Well, you know, but, but also uh, people are very disappointed in leadership uh, because you, we, you would have thought uh, it would have been a different warning. Uh, there would have been more preparation, uh, more time. And I think something about the way this went down adds to the conspiracy theory. You know, mm -hmm. because of what I do, I have access at the highest levels and because of my life. And I've talked to special mm -hmm. forces and military people. Uh, you know, I've talked to folk uh, who worked in, with special groups for FEMA. And there are a lot of different stories and takes about how this started, uh, when they knew about it. And mm -hmm. uh, some of the people I know who should know, uh, their stories are a little different uh, in, in terms of the uh, chemical plant. You know, the fact that they admit in terms of germ warfare, 
affected various diseases are being played with by countries. You know, we may not want to think like that, but uh, these major uh, countries around the world do that. So there's some some there's some information about how this got out uh, of a lab in Wuhan, uh, and uh, there are reports that are surfacing that they talked about the potential of this in 2012 and some years before. So if we knew that, why weren't we working on a, a vaccine or a cure earlier? And if we knew that, why didn't we have emergency preparation in place just in case something like this happened? Right. And there's questions that come into play with this current presidency and the elimination. And I think it was 2017, he eliminated the pandemic response team from the CDC. There's over 700 positions um, still open at the CDC. Um, So things like that, that you, you know, unfortunately come to the forefront when something like this comes out. So. Well, well, not only did he uh, eliminate and cut the budget for the CDC, in an area of German chemical warfare. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that doesn't make sense. But I think one of the key individuals uh, who was one of the leading scientists and, and, uh, and intellects in this area uh, actually uh, left or was let go or lost their position. So that didn't seem uh, to make much sense, sense at all. But nothing about this makes sense from what happened in China. We can say what we want about China. Uh, but when you talk about science and technology and research, uh, they've been one of the leaders uh, uh, in the world for for a long time. So, uh, you know, how did this catch them off guard? That's the first question. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, since we spy on each other so much, uh, how did it catch us off guard? Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, we'll leave that where it lies. We'll uh, keep continuing to stay safe and uh, posted something on Facebook the other day. It's like, look, if even if you don't want to do it, if you just do it, the faster people stay in shelter in place, the sooner it'll be over. But the more people kind of are playing around with, with this whole thing, then the longer we have to be in this kind of limbo state. And I think, you know, other than all of the, the conspiracy theories and who's fault and how do you fix it, I said in an interview that I did Friday that that's probably the most important message that and thing we can talk about right now is encouraging people to stay in place. Because look, it, we're gonna get through this. The question is, how many people are gonna be afflicted, infected, uh, and lose their lives when we get through it? And I would mm-hmm. hope that people would be a lot more selfless and less selfish. And hey man, if you gotta sacrifice uh, being still or being in your home, you know, for a few weeks, if it, if it saves someone's life, I think it's definitely worth it. For sure, for sure. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. And um, part of what I want to talk about during this interview is I threw in the COVID-19 just because, given that it's so pressing, it's kind of Absolutely. impossible not to not to talk about it. But talking a little bit about your, you talk, alluded a little bit to your political history and kind of talk about maybe some of the highlights, maybe some of the lowlights as well. Um, some of the other... Com- political climate issues, get COVID-19, you know, being its own thing that we've sort of addressed already. Um, how life has been after kind of in this post-politics era uh-huh. for you and like what you've done with that. And um, and uh, we'll go from there and we'll see if you want to get into that last topic around um, different well, personal tragedies and know, things. Other than being your cousin, uh, life's been uh, a little bit interesting for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, being related is not, it, it's one of the most interesting things, but, you know, <laughs> 
and you know, all, you know, all, all our families, our family comes out the lower ninth ward. You know, that's that's where we come from. Uh, in New Orleans, in the lower ninth ward, is is known all over the world. You know, mm -hmm. because of Betsy and Katrina. Uh, but I, I, you know, I went to uh, Wisconsin uh, University, Kenosha, to play basketball. Graduated, uh, finished playing basketball at the uh, College of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, played for the Boston Titans in the summer. Uh, pro league for a couple of years. Uh, didn't go to the NBA and uh, got my degree uh, in uh, New Mexico and and went to uh, went to work. You know, uh, uh, like everybody else. Uh, uh, finished the executive program uh, for state and local leaders at uh, Harvard, the Aspen Institute uh, on uh, policy uh, in, uh, in, in, in in international relations in, in Aspen, uh, Loyola's political institute and. I did everything I said I was never going to do. Lived in uh, Boston and New York and uh, L.A. and a few places. And I, I said I was never going to come back to New Orleans, uh, never going to get involved in politics and never get married. And uh, I wish I would have said I was going to never be rich. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would have happened. And uh, I came back to New Orleans, man, after just being compelled uh, to come back. You know, this place is something else, man. You know, we may establish our lives other places, but the flavor, you know, I'm, I'm a little Lord Night War boy for life, man. You know, with all the gumbo and, and etouffee and spice. And no matter where we are, you can attest that we're mm -hmm. New Orleans to the bone. Yeah. And New Orleans folk can recognize us if they're anywhere in the area uh, where we are. We open our mouths if, if a song comes on. <laughs> What's, what's up, sure. baby? What are you doing? You heard me? You know, no matter how educated we are, mm -hmm. something about New Orleans uh, is going to come out. So, uh, when I came back home and uh, uh, got involved in, you know, working, uh, 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 volunteering uh, in politics just to have something to do, and uh, a gentleman who is established in politics with the Bold Organization, who was the district councilman and later president of the council, offered me a job when he was in the district and. Uh, I didn't, you know, I was just planning on being in New Orleans a little while and leaving. But when he offered me the job, uh, I was compelled to accept it. He said, man, just try it out. You know, uh, he actually offered me the job that he promised to someone else. But after I interviewed him, he said, I'll find something for the other person. I want you to do this. So I got involved in legislative policy research, writing ordinances, uh, like, like policy and applying policy and planning. That's one of my strengths, taking a look at what community needs, drafting legislation of finding the right legislation. I love doing that still today. Uh, so I was his assistant. Uh, I left working for him, uh, went to work for the federal government uh, with C.J. Brown in housing. I was the project manager of the downtown development district, which oversees our downtown and all the special projects. And then uh, he uh, ran for city citywide office. Uh, you know, his seat came open and folks said, hey, man, you know, a lot of community people, because I'd started the Boys and Men Mentoring Program, and I won the uh, Jefferson Award for Community Service, because the kid that I had worked with went from a 0 0.40 GPA, so he graduated number seven in his class. Uh, and I'll, I always like, because of the neighborhood we grew up in, and your family comes out of, I always like working with the kids that folk said wouldn't make it, you know, because as smart as we were coming up, folk didn't know, know it, but they had already labeled us because of our, our zip code and our geography. So I won that award and people, community people said, I want you to run for office. I said, well, I wasn't from uptown, I was from downtown. And I was running against uh, uh, potentially 
two established elected officials. Uh, Dorothy May Taylor said she was going to run. Renee Pratt was a state representative. And Jesse Smallwood was head of the Housing Authority, man. Established people, political ties. They did a poll. I was 2%. Uh, and they said, man, 2%, you can't win. And I said, 2%? Damn. That's good. Wait till the other 98% get to know me. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know what happened. <laughs> well, we won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, every election after that, man, I did something no one in the city had ever done. My last three elections were uh, 90, uh, 80, uh, and, and, uh, and 78%. So that was, that was my political life. I, uh, I did the first zoning overlay here that created the Renaissance District and the Little Garden District which made it one of America's most livable communities, got the, ramp, got the ramp down, closed a lot of the dive bars and dive kitchens. And of course they won an award. Uh, out, I, I, uh, I created the alcohol per capita beverage legislation which looked at uh, in our community, we had more uh, alcoholic beverage and tobacco outlets per capita than any other place in the region and most places in America. So how, do we, we, how would we begin to limit that? And I also was the uh, did a lot of uh, housing legislation to create affordable housing. So that was kind of my, as a beginning elected official, uh, that was kind of the platform that propelled me uh, forward. And then when at large opened up, you know, uh, I ran and won citywide, uh, handling uh, both times and the last time for, for during Katrina, uh, which was, uh, of course, you know. Uh, one of the most challenging times in the history of this city. So uh, politically and, uh, you know, which was uh, uh, developed a great relationship when when uh, President George Bush used to say big O at all the press conferences. Uh, that was, and people, would, people would say, who was he talking about? He was talking about me uh, because I have a relationship uh, just uh, involved in uh, a lot of recovery in and out the water, trying to save and people. Uh, a lot of it. I didn't talk about a lot of it because uh, those days were kind of hard emotionally. I remember in the first week, we would go out in the boats and you would see bodies and there was no place to bring them. So they would tell you just tie it to a post or tie it to a fence. Or we'd have a list of people and you would go to houses where no one's there. Uh, I remember going to the Johnson's house on General, uh, I think it was General Pershing uh, on my island. And their relatives were looking for him because they couldn't hear from him. And uh, Mr. Johnson was 90 and his wife was in her 80s. And be- because the people who weren't from here didn't know the streets, they needed to see street signs. You know, we don't need no street signs to know what street it is, where we come from. So when I got to the house, uh, we got there just in time uh, because they were trying to get up into the attic because water was on their second floor. 90% of the old people who went in the attic, when they found them, they were dead uh, because of the temperature and because that just wasn't a place to be. So uh, we were able to rescue uh, them. Uh, Tony Ledette, Miss Ledette, who lived on Sonia in Claiborne, uh, two times they tried to rescue her and her son. But uh, Tony was 320 pounds and he was autistic. And the boats that used to go to get him, he would act out. And so they were they were afraid to put him on a boat because he would potentially topple the boat and risk the folk who were trying to do the rescue. So I volunteered to go get him. 
And so they said, hey, man, you know, you're crazy. And I said, well, no, just give me two people. You know, you're my, you know, my sister, Juliet. Juliet was special. You know, so we, yeah. we grew up, we grew up knowing how to communicate. And I thought maybe that experience could help me. So when we got to the house, uh, funny, but not funny. I'll never forget one of the wildlife and fisheries guys from Tennessee who was with me. When we got to the house, first thing I did was calm Tony's mom down. Because I knew that if he saw that his mom was comfortable, he would be comfortable. So, Because he saw the person most connected to him trusted me and was at peace. Well, so we got him to start walking towards the porch because they lived in the upper level of Sonia to get on the boat. And as we were approaching the boat, one of the guys tried to grab him to put him on the boat first. Lord, 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 Lord. <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 no. So he started, he's like, thought he was taking him away from his mom. So I was like, no, let his mom hold his hand and we'll walk him to the boat. Okay. And so you can imagine on the rescue boat, someone 320 pounds who's autistic, who's out of control. And, and the water was like 12 feet under us, you know, at that time. Uh, and so we were able to do that. Uh, we got him to the center of Napoleon, where the helicopters would come to drop the little basket. And the guys almost made uh, a, a, mis a mis mistake again. Right? And they tried to take the mom to put her in the basket. And so Tony grabbed my wrist. And he, when he grabbed me, he edged over to the end of the boat. And if it would have fell in, you know, he wasn't going to let me go. You know? <laughs> but we were able to. Rectify all of that, man. Uh, put his mom in the basket first, put him in the basket, uh, and got him up. And uh, uh, there were some interesting times uh, there, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, it was worth it, you know, just to see people uh, get, get saved because a lot of people didn't. So that was Katrina. Uh, of course, uh, you know, I made national news uh, when I went to, when I went to uh, prison, and. Uh, a lot of folk thought that was the end of life, but I looked at it as an opportunity to begin life. It, was, uh, it wasn't a good chapter in my life, but, uh, you know, with God and faith and hard work and sacrifice, you know, there's nothing that, uh, that, you, there's nothing that you can't overcome. So, uh, you know, I had the help of a whole lot of people. I had more people praying for me uh, and encouraging me than I could ever think of that I even knew. But, but something happened. Uh, before I came, came home, man, I had a friend who wrote me and challenged me in eight critical areas of life to kind of think about before I came home, you know. And uh, I answered uh, all those eight questions that he that uh, uh, he gave me. And he said, we'll answer them again once you get here. And uh, I think that was one of the most inspirational things. And then Anthony Bean challenged me to do a, uh, a play about Moradillo and about my life that uh, I was reluctant at first. And, and Monique, he challenged me with a question. He said, so when everything's going right in your life, you can leave. But when everything's going sour, you can't step up. And of course, you know, in our DNA, we like a challenge, you know. And sometimes that's good and bad, but he challenged me. He said, so when life is good, you can be good. But when life is rough, you, you can't step up. 
So I took that challenge uh, and we, we wrote to play, sold out, thir- Reflection sold out 13 straight nights. I got front page cover of the New York Times entertainment section. Uh, we got coverage all over uh, the world. And uh, then I started doing Treme. You know, I don't know if you watched season one and two, but you know, that was your cat, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was uh, a lot of fun, you know, a, a new chip in life, but still wasn't sure, uh, still didn't have, uh, you know, the confidence, still was a little embarrassed about, because sometimes, you know, all you got is your name. You know, my father used to always tell us that, you know, I might not have money to give you, might not have material things to give you, uh, but you got to have a good name. And uh, worked hard to overcome that, uh, you know, uh, you know, put actually, I had good people in my life to help me overcome it. And so here we are t- uh, uh, today, uh, you know, uh, fast forward, uh, still do a lot of political consultation. Not much happens in the city, you know, uh, that I'm not involved in and know about. Uh, uh, my, my wife, Jasmine Thomas, uh, uh, taught me how to parlay that. You know, so many people were relying on me for information. And I'd never been a businessman, but I've always been someone who helped people. And so she told me, she said, hey, man, you know, information is valuable. It means something. And uh, in, in terms of business and opportunity, uh, life's never been better. Uh, you know, I work for uh, an engineering firm. We work on linear projects, infrastructure. We do hazard mitigation uh, for FEMA, uh, public policy analysis. I do what I do with the Stafford Act and figuring stuff out and, and, and uh, relate and infrastructure and leadership relationships. And then... Uh, Equity Media, man, and uh, the number one, you know, morning talk show in New Orleans, right? Oliver Thomas in the early birds. So uh, that's where we are today. So that was a whole lot to get to that point, but that's what you want. No, that's what I wanted to take the people through, like, your journey. It's just because, you know, everyone goes through different things to get to where they are at this point, and people don't always... um, understand the peaks and valleys along the way that take like you know if someone just has you know never met you before they say oh he's a radio personality he's got a good life and it's he's on easy street and he's just really into politics without knowing the journey but yet you know and i think that's important uh first of all you know i don't like to line up you know it's like folk will look at, at your family and look at where people are now and never think you come out the Lower Ninth Ward, right? You know, that, that was the origins, right? That little house on St. Maurice Street, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I've always thought that, you know, the greatest struggles make the greatest accomplishment. Uh, people who know how to survive are the best people to line up with, you know, and people who know how to overcome their struggles, be at their best when they think they're at their worst, that's the people that run the world. And I had an old mm-hmm. man in prison who taught me that. The call was Uncle Ron. We used to call him Uncle Ron. He uh, he used to have this book of all the world leaders, uh, from Jesus to Mandela to Pinochet to Mother Teresa, to, you know, to Churchill to Guerra, uh, you know, uh, uh, Harriet Tubman, all uh, uh, Malcolm Martin, and he and he kept want me to read the books. So I said, man, I'm you know, I got I got education, man. I don't read up all these people before. He said, no, read it and then talk to me afterwards. So I finally did, and we met in the prison library, and he said, so uh, what'd you get out of it? I said, well, what do you mean? I already know about Malcolm and Martin and Mother Teresa, you know, and, and Churchill and Mandela. He said, what, what do you mean, what did I get out of it? He said, man, all of them had something in common. 
So I said, well, yeah, they were all great leaders. He said, no. They all had a point in their life where they were sick, locked up, locked out, on their deathbed, or counted out. He said, all of them. He said, so what makes you any different? Why, you know, why should you pity yourself? He said, so if, if the greatest have had moments in their life where they didn't even know they would live, or they would be locked up or locked out. Why does it have to be over? And uh, that was real instrumental. I don't even didn't even know it was at that time. But in trying to gather my life and move forward, I try to use that to help other people uh, who may think uh, uh, they're in a place that they can't get out of. Um, and maybe in that same vein, we can talk a little bit about um, some personal tragedy that you've also had in the past, even like during the course of your political career. And if you don't feel like talking about it, that's absolutely fine, too. Um, uh, yeah. But I want to talk a little bit about the loss of your son in, in uh, that car accident years ago. Well, you know, you know, in our family was extremely uh, involved in that. Uh, uh, I didn't understand it when... Uh, you know, we had a couple tragedies in our family. My younger sister, Rosalind, your aunt, you know, uh, Monica, you mm -hmm. know, uh, who I think you're partly named after. Yep. Right? Exactly. So uh, two beautiful young, young girls who, who, you know, who God took too early. So I never understood what my mom, when she sit, would say that she belonged to a club that she never wished or your mother and your father, they, they belong to a club that they would wish no one else would ever be part of. And that is, you kind of, you never get over losing a, a child. So it's something that I dealt with uh, every day, uh, watching him grow and playing with him in my mind. Uh, and then God gifted me and my wife gifted me with, uh, with the most beautiful little boy, uh, the most beautiful stepdaughter in the world. So it, sometimes it, it's... Uh, I, I, I still think about Bradley and BJ, but I don't every day anymore. And I used to feel bad about that, but I don't because I think he, he lives through the life and the lives that I've been unfortunate to cherish uh, today. But uh, yeah, that was it was interesting. Uh, I still pray every night that no one ever joins that club because it's something that parents never never get over. I was just blessed enough to be gifted uh, with a woman and two kids that could not fill that void. Definitely get, give me something to look forward to every day. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, that was tough. I know. That, that was for you. I know. If you had said no, I would have been like, that's cool. We'll just move on. You don't hear me. You don't hear me talking about that and my other stuff. No, I know, and um, it's definitely something that I don't think anybody, and I can count myself as a number, can fully appreciate unless you've gone through it. And it's something that you, like you said, you don't wish any, that on probably anybody, and probably not even your worst enemy. Um, do you think during tragedies that people are good at trying to help people through that? Or did you have a lot of people try and like give you any tips or anything well, during that time? That is so interesting. Uh, there are some people who are good. I never used to say it though, cuz, but 
the thing that used to hurt me most during that time, and I've just recently, when I talk to people, go through grief, and I, I talk to groups now. People will call me to talk, talk to groups to motivate them or kind of help them encourage them, right? I used to really not understand when people would say they know how you feel. And they would come in and say, oh, man, I know how you feel. And I wouldn't say anything, and I wouldn't just disrespect them reaching out emotionally like that, but they had no idea uh, how I felt. And I think sometimes we go out of our way to want to sympathize with people, you know, instead of just being warm enough to let them know that you're there. But no one ever knows how you feel. Or when people would say, you'll get over it. It'll be okay. Well, how do you know that? You know, you're not in my head or my heart. But besides that, uh, I, I think there are more, more good people and more encouragement. And even those people who I didn't understand why they said what they said, I, I appreciated the fact that it, at least they cared enough to connect with me. Yeah. But tragedy motivates you, uh, especially if you learn how to focus, right, and you're driven. Uh, sometimes it can be bad with me, or uh, I'll say personality types like us. It's almost like uh, when things get real bad, I focus the most, you know. Uh, when there's a real challenge, I'm, I'm even more committed, or to prove a point. You know, now they say a personality people are, are genuinely like that, but it's not always necessarily a good thing uh, because sometimes in our lives we can manufacture uh, stuff just to be motivated to accomplish something, to do something. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm coming to terms with that now. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, good information. I think it's good for people to realize that even when they're trying to help sometimes just to be cognizant of that. Um, so wh what are some things that people can, I know you do a lot with different groups or ways people can reach out to you on social media or, um, if they're interested in trying to help the city and various different things. Well, you know, Oliver Thomas on Facebook, uh, you know, I got recognized by the station, uh, last week for, uh, the amount of people that I reached, uh, you know, both on Facebook live and through, uh, the website and on the radio. So Oliver Thomas on Facebook Live, uh, OT Outreach on 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 Instagram. And uh, you can tune in to the uh, Good Morning Show, man. Uh, uh, stream it at uh, uh, 1230am.com. Uh, you know, or the even the call-in line. I, I, I have people uh, from Tampa. I have some people from Spain. I got a guy calls in from Frisco, David from Frisco. Uh, the call-in line is 504-582. 9422-504-582-9422. And right now, you know, what you're doing and what I'm doing uh, is hot because people are looking for alternative sources. They don't trust mainstream media. Uh, they don't trust the information, sometimes as much as they trust the government. And uh, people are naturally looking for someone that can talk to them, that can inform them, entertain them, uh, and give them a different perspective. For sure. And, and the, so the website again is WBOK1230AM.com? Yeah, yeah, WBOK1230.com. Oh, 1230. Yeah, 1230.com. 1230.com. Okay, awesome. 
Well, thanks again, Oliver, for um, for taking time out. I know you're, there's probably a lot of, of your honeydew list you get to check off being locked indoors. Um, so man, that'll just, be I good. Just, I just ate the best uh, early evening dish, man. So now I got to go walk it off. And uh, We're working on an art project, uh, uh, me and my, my little girl, Willow. So we're doing the uh, the movie Up, The House of mm-hmm. the Balloons. So oh, nice. We, yeah, we're doing actually a little painting uh, of that. You know, I used to paint a lot, so I, I draw a lot. So I, I don't know, maybe I'm inspired to get back to that uh, in, in, in writing again. But uh, yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely stuff to do. And look, I appreciate you. Of course, uh, you know, we'd love to have you back on the Good Morning Show, give the perspective, especially with what's happening in your area. California, uh, I think, was on lockdown before most of the nation, and then its relationship mm-hmm. with China and a very huge Asian population, uh, I think oh, it's yeah. the thing to do, you know, especially uh, California is heavily, more heavily reliant on, on Asia and China than, uh, than, than a lot of the rest of the United States. Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely try and probably maybe um, I can look at my Monday schedule, okay. but I might try and call in in the morning. I'll text you about it and we okay. can kind of coordinate that. Gotcha. Cool. want to thank Oliver Thomas or OT as he's known to many um, for sitting down with me to talk all things politics, COVID-19 and everything in between. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode and as always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at The Victory Pod. You can also be sure to share and subscribe wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere where you're listening to this podcast. Please share it with your friends, your family, and even your enemies. Once again, thanks for listening. And I'll end this episode as I do every episode with my sign-off line. Every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.